Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us that were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flowers of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we get to remember, we get to celebrate that though Christ died for our sins, he rose again the third day. And because of that, Lord, you have made available to us all the benefits of Calvary. And Lord, you've given us the promise of the future. And Lord, I pray that you would enable me this morning, as Peter says later, to speak as the oracle of God. 
that the hearts of people might be penetrated, people might be encouraged, Lord, by your word that people might come to faith. So Lord, minister to us by your word, encourage our hearts, and, um, and be blessed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As you've probably noticed, uh, it would probably take weeks to treat this chapter with any real justice, but this morning, there is a theme that we're trying to honor, so let's keep to it. Peter just told us that because of the resurrection, we have new birth, verse three. We have a living hope, verse three. An imperishable inheritance in heaven, verse four. We have God's protection, verse five. Love and faith with inexpressible and glorious joy, verse eight. And all which results in salvation of our souls, verse nine. All of these things are the benefits of the cross that are made available to us by the resurrection. Let's begin with the new birth. First, in verse three, Peter said that it was according to God's abundant mercy that he has begotten us again. It wasn't just according to some of his mercy. Peter says it was his abundant mercy. It was God's extreme pity that compelled him to move on our behalf. He he saw our plight, the misery and end of all our sin, and he was moved within himself to extend mercy in abundance. You see, when the infinite God extends an abundance of mercy, it is to us an incomprehensible amount. We have no real concept of the actual depth of the offense of our sin, and so we have no idea of the amount of mercy required to pull us out. Whatever that amount is, it was abundant in respect to what is infinite. In light of that reality, we should never minimize the gravity of our sin or the majesty of his grace. It required the cross of Calvary to rescue the sinner. It meant exposing the Son of God to what we deserved. And we sing that song, Mercy Tree, speaking of the cross. The lyrics are half correct. The cross certainly meant mercy for us, but it meant all wrath for Jesus. In order for God to extend saving mercy to us, Jesus had to bear the penalty for our sin. Peter continues in verse three saying that it was according to God's great mercy that the believer was begotten again. That is, uh, we were born again. What's that all about? When Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, Jesus said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And later Jesus said he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's John 3, 3 and verse 5. You see, man cannot remain as he is if he is to enter the kingdom of God. As he is, man is unfit for such a thing. And so we must be born again, uh, not by somehow redoing our natural birth, our mothers would never go for that, but by supernatural birth, as Jesus explains. This is the rebirth of the soul. Uh, We will certainly uh, need a new body to enter heaven because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven either, 1 Corinthians 1550, this, this body is going to have to become something inherently different, although similar. But before all that, our spirit must be born again. Now, the whole uh, born again language is referred to in many different ways in the scriptures. Here, it's begotten again. In John 1.13, uh, John says, born of God. It's repeated that way multiple times in 1 John. Um, James 1.18 says, brought forth. And Paul says, regeneration in Titus 3, 5. 
Now, maybe you've noticed Pentecostals like to say born again. Uh, Reformed people like to say regeneration. And then others like to say born of God. Uh, But the Bible likes all three. Uh, Maybe you've heard some people say uh, they're Christians, but they're not those born again Christians. Now, I understand what they mean, but if you're not actually born again by the Spirit of God, you're not saved. You'll not see the kingdom of God until you are. You you must go from being dead in sin to be alive in God through Christ Jesus. So you can call it what you want, but you better be whatever Jesus meant in John 3. And then when Jesus wrapped up his conversation with Nicodemus, he told him how to be born again, saying, whoever believes in the Son of Man will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's John 3, 15. Peter says that God's mercy and the miracle of regeneration, our salvation, is a product of the resurrection. The resurrection makes all the benefits of the cross available to everyone, but those benefits are only distributed to those who believe. As Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God's saving grace is only granted through faith. We all know the verse, for by grace you've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. So saving grace is available but not distributed until there is faith. You must believe. Back in 1 Peter 1.3, Peter says that God has begotten us again to a living hope. Our living hope is the risen Christ who alone opens heaven to us. There is no hope in any other person or idea. Hope in anything but Christ is a dead hope. Listen carefully. Peter said, God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. From the dead literally means from among the rest of the dead. You see, all religious leaders that have lived before Jesus are still with the rest of the dead. And so what they offered died with them. And so any hope in them or what they they taught is a dead hope. And all religious leaders that have taught since Jesus seem to die off and and never come back. And so any hope in them or what they teach is really a death sentence. But Christ rose from the dead glorified, never to die again because death could not hold him. The hope that he offers is alive because he's alive. When he stood before the apostles after being brutally murdered and in the grave for three days, you can imagine the living hope that surged in their hearts. Every doubt removed and every word of Christ confirmed. And what is interesting is in the text, it says that Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit by which they were born again, John 20, 22. At that moment, They exercised faith in the risen Christ and their spirit was quickened by the spirit of God and they were truly alive. And by their faith in living Christ who gave them a living hope, we know that they began to risk their lives to give others hope. You know, the truth of the gospel gave them courage beyond measure knowing that when they passed from this life, they would enter into their inheritance as Peter says in verse four, one that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, which was reserved for them in heaven. They were willing to lose everything here on earth to gain everything in heaven. This is what faith in the resurrection will do to you. It will remove your fear of death and fill you with courage to share the gospel. And so far, history has proven that there's nothing that can stop us. Jesus even said, Upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. 
And that statement can only be true if Jesus' resurrection guarantees our own. Not only are we begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ and guaranteed an incorruptible inheritance in heaven, Peter says we are kept, that is, we are protected and secured by the power of God through faith for salvation until the end. That's verse five. So by the power of God, the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead secures our salvation. There's nothing that can rip us out of the grip of God. Now Paul, who understood the gospel pretty well, said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans eight thirty-five through 39. Because Jesus rose from the dead, Paul and Peter are saying we're secure in him. He's our rock. He cannot be budged. And that's why we sing on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is seeking sand. We are safe in him. Jesus, who I see as a fairly reliable source, said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, John 10, 27 through 30. And then Peter says, for those who understand how safe and secure they are, he says they greatly rejoice. Verse six, how could they not? He says they greatly rejoice even though they are grieved by various trials that test the genuineness of their faith. Peter's point is this, our living hope that comes from the the resurrection looks beyond the momentary ugliness here on earth to the eternal beauty that's beyond. Christ's resurrection guarantees our own resurrection, delivering us from the woes of this world and ushering us into the glories of heaven. So a perspective born out of faith in the resurrection actually looks forward to what the testing of our faith accomplishes. The fruit that is born out of a genuine faith after it's been tested by fiery trials brings forth praise, honor, and glory to Christ, which the believer lives for. You know, difficulty has a way of putting the believer's priorities in order. Unnecessary things fall to the wayside. Essential things rise to the surface, like the glory of God. And as our hearts regain their focus, because of trials, it turns our attention to heaven in praise, And we see this when Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi. After being stripped and beaten with rods, chained and imprisoned, they started praying and singing hymns at midnight, probably because they couldn't sleep from the pain. After Peter and the gang were beaten for preaching the resurrection, it says they rejoiced. After Paul was mobbed in Jerusalem, he started sharing the gospel the moment he was free. Preaching the gospel was more important than his safety. When he was unjustly imprisoned in Caesarea, Luke tells us that Paul was glad to share the gospel with Felix and fortunate to testify before King Agrippa. 
The way these men endured trials was, we might say, doxological in nature. It was God-glorifying. They suffered for Christ's honor and the advancement of his cause, all because Christ rose from the dead. This loyalty through suffering, our praises in the face of persecution, our integrity through injustice pleases God. It honors him. And it appears, according to Peter, that on the day that Christ is revealed, all of the collective praise, honor, and glory from all of God's people will be manifest at that moment for him. Why? Here's my theory. Because the risen king deserves a worthy welcome. So I would say live now for the accumulation of his glory. Now Peter brings this discussion about the benefits of the resurrection to a close by saying that the believer rejoices with inexpressible joy that is full of glory because he knows that his faith will see its intended end, the salvation of our souls, verse nine. Faith is fully convinced that what God has promised through the resurrection, he's also able to perform. The promise goes like this. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Because Jesus defeated death, every believer will follow. Death will take this body and it can have it, but it cannot touch our soul or the resurrected body. In the final section of 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13, Peter turns to the moral implications of the gospel. We've talked about the benefits, but what are the moral implications? He's answering the question, how then shall we live? If by faith we are the recipients of this great salvation, how should it work itself out in our lives? First Peter says, gird up the loins of your, your mind. Not a, an idiom that we use in our culture. It's a, it's a Middle Eastern idiom of how flowing garments uh, would need to be lifted up out of the way of your feet if you're to move with any haste and efficiency. As we know from the Middle East, they, they, row, they, they wore flowing garments to keep themselves cool in the heat. But you can't run, you can't move efficiently when those are wrapped around your feet, so they must be girded up. The idea is that Christians should get everything out of their way that would hinder them from obeying God's word and living for his glory. The author of Hebrews says something similar. He tells us to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us, that is, that trips up our feet, so that we can run with endurance the race that's set before us. Peter also adds to this that we should be sober now, in our culture, we always associate sobriety with, uh, with, with that of uh, abstinence from alcohol. That's not really the, the reference here. Uh, the idea of a sober mind is a stable mind. Alcohol can certainly cause instability of mind, but so can fear, so can unbelief. Irrational thinking is really the opposite of being sober-minded. If you want to be sober-minded, you must think biblically, not emotionally, not chemically, or according to our culture. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2. That is only possible if the mind is redeemed and then subject to the scriptures. So Peter would tell us to yield our minds to God and the study of his word. Peter adds uh, to this, he says, uh, to rest our hope fully on the grace that is being brought to us at the revelation of Christ as if not enough grace has already been delivered to us. We have, we have this grace coming to us. It's being brought to us when Christ is revealed. 
Now, I love the hope of Christ's revelation because when he appears, there'll no longer be a need for an apologetic. There'll no longer be a need for faith. We won't have to defend the gospel or struggle to believe in the gospel. The gospel will appear before us and hope will become sight. It's grace when Christ comes. Peter continues in verse 15 through 16 that we should be holy because the God who called us is holy and he commands us to be like him. He saved us to reflect his character in the world. As we know from Romans 8, he's busy conforming us to the image of Christ. And Paul says that this is actually possible because spiritually we have been risen with Christ to live a different kind of life, Romans 6, 4. He says in Romans 8 that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. He's exerting the same power in us that we might live for God, Romans 8, 11. So Peter would tell us to walk in that power. Peter says that the time we have left here on earth should be conducted in fear. That is the fear of God, verse 17. Now fear is the proper perspective when God is properly understood. And when God is properly understood, life is put in its proper order. Sin is avoided, holiness is pursued, and God is worshiped. Fear God with the remaining time that you have here. And finally, because of the gospel, Peter says to love one another fervently with a pure heart, verse 22. This is possible because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through Christ Jesus so that it might overflow to other people. So there you have it. We have the necessity of the resurrection. We have the benefits of the resurrection. And we might say we have the marching orders because of the resurrection, the moral implications. And so Peter concludes by saying, now this is the word which by the gospel we preach to you. Verse 25. And it was just preached to us. All because Jesus walked out of the tomb. Now in closing, I'd like to give you a, a resurrection benediction from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 through 21. And then we'll pray. The author of Hebrews says, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, there's so much that could be said about the resurrection. It's all throughout the pages of the New Testament. It is, it is our victory. Lord, we thank you that you secured that for us. Lord, we thank you for the cross and all of the benefits. And we thank you that you rose so that we might receive those benefits. And Lord, as we, as we look in hindsight to the resurrection, we look in hindsight to all of the truth of your word, Lord, help us to live worthy of all that, as Peter was telling us at the end of his chapter. Lord, you saved us, you redeemed us, that we might live for you. Lord, I pray that as the world around us is crumbling because of, of, of uncertainty, because of its lack of hope, everybody's doing their best to die last. But Lord, you have given us life. You've given us hope by the resurrection. Help us to live in that hope. Help us to demonstrate that hope to friends, to family, to strangers, Lord. And Lord, because of this, help us to always be ready to give an answer for this hope that is in us. Lord, thank you for the resurrection. 
And thank you, Lord, that you're coming back again for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.